this is Brian Kaminsky from the BT Focus podcast. I am joined by special RBT guest, Taj Campbell. Taj, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, we just wanted to have you tune back in for um, some fun things that we have planned on the podcast where we're going to go full in depth at all things RBT related. The task list, sharing fun stories, doing test questions, and really just getting you ready for the exam. Taj, any words of wisdom to future RBTs listening to the podcast? Have fun. Any parting words of wisdom, it's, it could be summed up in those two words. Don't overthink. You got it. Well, study, study, study. <laughs> Utilize your BCBAs, your supervisors. Use every resource at your disposal. They are going to be really crucial to having a successful result with the exam. And hey, if you're looking for a study buddies, we got you covered. All right. So yeah, be sure to tune in. Yeah, <laughs> we got you. We got you. All right. Thanks, Taj. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Brian. In today's episode, we speak about some of the ways in which we can make ABA individualized, dignified, and engaging. Our conversation today is on preference assessments. Let's get started. Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the BT Focus podcast. I'm Brian Kaminsky and today I'm joined by a returning guest, Ian McGarvey. Ian, what's going on? Brian, at what point do I become not a guest? (laughs) You're stable now. You're stuck with me. All right. Welcome back in. I'm so excited to introduce a a new voice to the podcast. I'm joined by Taj Campbell. Taj, welcome, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, Taj, you and I have had the pleasure of getting to know one another over the past couple of weeks. But for those of our listeners who have not had the pleasure, mind sharing with them a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm a Bay Area native. I have a theater background, arts background. A little bit after college, I went to SF State, San Francisco State University. I was kind of finding my my path and my career. I was kind of hopping from one thing to the next. Centria dropped into my lap October of 2019, and I was really looking for something that was going to give me the purpose and the meaning, what I wanted to do, which was to help others. And a year and a half almost later, I'm, I'm here, and I've been riding the ABA wave ever since, and i think that this is definitely what I want to do. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey. It's been a great one, a challenging journey, but it's always exciting every day. And so again, Ian and Brian, thank you for having me today to discuss my experiences. Absolutely. Thank you, Taj. And if I can give you a quick little shout out, can I add to that? Um, sure. Not too... Not too recently, you passed a really important milestone in the field of ABA. Mind sharing uh, what that milestone was? I did. So I recently received my certification for RBT back in October of last year. So newly minted RBT. That was definitely, I don't think I've worked that hard since college, to be honest with you. Like it was pedal to the metal. I was like, this is what I want to do. I was inching towards that direction anyway. So I just said, you know, I'm going to do it. 
and I did it and it was a relief after I got, you know, to that peak of the certification process and everything. And it's, it was probably one of my proudest moments that I've had in my life. That's, that's amazing, man. Congratulations again. That is such Thank tremendous you. news and a testament of just so much hard work and not just like the book knowledge, if you will, because that's part of the exam. And we will we'll go over the RBT series later on, but also it's uh, so much of that test is practical knowledge and, and being able to put yourself in those situations and say like, what would I do in practice, right? I mean, reflect on that. And so to have that certification is a huge testament to your work ethic uh, and something we should be very proud of. So that's tremendous. Thank and you so much. Agreed. When, when you were sharing about your previous background as well, I was kind of reflecting how so many, would you say this is the case in so many of our colleagues and peers in many ways have this like serendipitous way of stumbling into ABA, if you will. That was the case for me. I, I was planning on going into special education and really I, it just became very evident as soon as I got into the field, like, oh, yep, yeah, this is what I was actually meant to do. So yeah. Well, what absolutely. about you, Ian? Yeah, well, it wasn't until recently that they started coming out with bachelor's level applied behavior analysis programs. And so before then, most, if not everyone, unless you went to a university that focused on ABA, such as Western Michigan in their undergraduate psychology programs, you weren't really finding out about ABA until you finished your undergrad anyways. So yeah, I was the same thing, just kind of fell into it after college and never looked back. So yeah, a really good podcast other than our own, a shameless plug, a really good podcast for the field is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria, and he interviews the the best of the best in the field. And one of the first questions he always asks is, you know, how did you get into the field of applied behavior analysis? And what would you say, Ian, like 5% say, you know what? I went to undergrad. I knew that I wanted to be a BCBA and I, it was just this straight trajectory all the way to that. And it's, that's never the case, right? It's people that- Yeah, very few. Yeah, that very have few. these wow. have these interests or passions and it aligns with our science. And then, man, the, the rest is history. So cool. I love hearing about people's stories and how they fell in love with the field. So thanks for sharing that, Taj. So- Well, great. Let's just kick off our conversation this morning then. It's a beautiful day. Spring is in the air. And what we're going to be talking about today is our March clinical topic of preference assessments. All right. This is going to be a topic that's going to be explored in all of our team meetings occurring all throughout the country in the month of March. And what we want to do is expound upon some of the discussion points being explored in these meetings and maybe bring some of our own experiences to the table, some stories that we can use to highlight different components of this topic. And then Part two, which you're going to have to tune in for in a future episode, is we are going to be running through some test prep scenarios related to preference assessments that's going to be uh, incorporated into our RBT mini series. All right. So we're going to do part one today, and then you got to tune back in uh, to keep the, the party going. So that sound like a plan, guys? Sounds great. All right, guys. So let's, uh, let's get started. Let's start with the basics, preference assessments. What are we talking about? Let's start off with the definition. Uh, a preference assessment is a tool used to systematically identify preferred stimuli that may function as reinforcers for clients. Okay, so to un- unpack that just a bit more, we're trying to systematically identify what's going to be reinforcing. We're trying to figure out what are those preferred items or activities or 
games or food items. It can be any variety of things that we can use to promote the different desirable behaviors that we're looking to build, right? So it can come in many forms and fashions. And so there's going to be different ways, different strategies, different types of preference assessments that we can use to identify those reinforcers. And to me, this is one of the most important things you can do as a RBT, as a behavior technician, to set your sessions up for success. Because identifying successful reinforcers, one, is going to make teaching way more easy for you and for the client. It's going to make it more fun. And it's also going to reduce the likelihood that you're going to see challenging behavior, right? Because if you have effective reinforcers, you're going to be motivated. And if you're motivated, it all falls into place. So it shouldn't be seen as an impediment to learning or this other thing you have to do on top of teaching. It really should be like the first thing, right? Uh, As a rule of thumb for me when I was in the field as a BT, I'm not starting teaching until I know what the reinforcer is in that moment for that client, right? Taj, anything you want to add to that just from your own experience of, you know, the importance of conducting regular preference assessments? Well, in my experience, and this is, you know, true for even today as I'm working with my clients, I, I do preference assessments consistently, daily, by the minute, you know, because a lot of the clients I work with, they, one, they're a broad range of ages. So for the little ones, I find that you kind of have to go back to the drawing board. What may start out as a really heavy enforcer and a very influential one that's going to influence motivation, it may change within minutes or sometimes even seconds. So making sure that you have uh, a wide variety, maybe three to five different choices that they can choose from it's going to be really helpful. And just having a bag of tricks and having resources available in those moments, that way you can go back and ask your client, like, okay, what do you want to work for? What do you want? And like you said, Brian, it could be anything from a toy, a blanket. For the older kids, it's Minecraft, it's video games. So just making sure that they're constantly in the moment, they're motivated, you're drawing their attention back to these choices. And um, it's a constant process of trying and, and to see what works. That doesn't work. If that reinforcer isn't as effective, take it out. You know, you make sure you have uh, a new set of reinforcers that they may potentially want, and you go from there. So, that's awesome. Extremely yeah, well and said, Taj. Thank and you. I want to circle back to that, that the proverbial bag of tricks later on. There, right? Okay. Um, cool. You know, what do you have in your therapy bag? It's always a fun question. I remember reflecting of like, man, what on a given week? You know, I've got everything from Ninja Turtles to Minecraft to you name it in my realm of potential reinforcers, which are always fun. So, yeah. um, Ian, let me pitch it to you. Just initial thoughts on preference assessments. And for you as a supervising clinician, like what parting words of wisdom would you like to share with our listeners on the topic? First thing I have to say is, is that was really well said by Taj. Um, oh, thank you, Ian. Golly, that was, that was a very just well-rounded way of of helping explain the the importance and to to add on to what Taj was saying there are oftentimes especially when you're working with clients who aren't able to as fluently vocalize their wants and needs we're not able to just ask them the simple question of hey what is it that you want to work for and them just hey spit it out and that does make things um, you know, flow a lot more easily and for some kids that don't have that ability what do we do how do we know 
what is going to motivate that child. So that at the end of the reinforcement schedule, we know exactly where that child's motivation is. And we don't have to guess at that point. We don't have to then try and say, well, wh- what do you want? And, and hold up an item and no, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. And then problem behaviors occur. We've already taken care of that on the front end. So when we get done with that last task, we give them that opportunity to demand. And if they don't, we're there to prompt. And we know what we need to prompt because we know what they're motivated for. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And as you're describing that, Ian, I, I think effective reinforcers and preference assessments, you can really view as what we'd refer to as an antecedent strategy for preventing the likelihood of challenging behavior. When does problem behavior occur? Uh, oftentimes, it's to gain access to a preferred item or to escape from an activity that is less preferred. So if we can find things to enrich that environment, to provide those really rich reinforcers contingent upon the appropriate behavior, we're going to prevent problem behavior from it occurs a lot of the time, right? And to look at it from maybe just a more holistic approach as well, like if we're having a lot of reinforcement embedded into our teaching, what do you think that's going to do to our rapport building with that client to use a non-behavioral terms, right? Like, what do you think that's going to do to that therapeutic environment, those interactions that we're having? They're just going to be that much more rich and meaningful and therapy should be fun. I can't say that enough. ABA sessions should be fun because they're so rich in reinforcement. So guys, really well said, some great introductory comments on the topic of preference assessment. So let's go a little bit further. All right. So there's many different types of preference assessments, and you might find that you're using one tactic over the other, depending on the scenario. Before I get into the technical descriptions of, of each, I when I'm talking to new behavior technicians, I usually like to describe preference assessments as three broad categories. One's where you can simply ask. Secondly, ones that you can observe. And then thirdly, ones that you can directly test. Okay, so the ones that we ask, right? We might see this sometimes with our clients that have a lot of language skills. It's as simple as, hey, what do you want to work for today? Or in some cases, it's completely unprompted. Hey, Mr. Brian, can we go outside? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get some work done first. Then we can go outside, right? So some of these preference assessments can be somewhat informal, but very efficient and very effective and a great way to start teaching. And one other thing that I might add to that too Sometimes for clients that maybe don't have the same language abilities and you're starting to build that therapeutic relationship, sometimes asking family members, parents, teachers, like, tell me more about Johnny. What are the things that they find to be preferred? We might have to use those things later on in a more structured preference assessment, but they can start that initial discovery process. Taj, anything you want to add? What have you seen to be successful? Oh, yeah. So I think you were mentioning sometimes it's, it's as simple as when you sit down with your client, they can actually, sometimes it's unprompted, or you can ask them and they'll give you that answer. I find that with my older clients who have the nuances and the, the communication skills to verbalize what they want uh, when we are initially coming into session, it's actually super easy because it's like, okay, so I'm asking this question and they're responding to what do you want to work for? Or what do you want to earn as your prize at the end? or things like that. So it's easier in that sense. With clients who are nonverbal, it, I think uh, Ian nailed it earlier about observation, the observing of the client in that moment. Let's say um, I had a client at, he was about maybe three, three or four, nonverbal. I would go to his house 
I was doing in-home at the time, and there was everything from puzzles to Legos to Play-Doh and toys and things that were like very tangible, like he could access it really easily. So in those moments, I'd say within the first five, 10 minutes, I would just observe and kind of like watch and narrate. You know, if he's going over to the Legos, I would say like, oh, it looks like you're going to the Legos. That looks fun. So like that way it's, it doesn't feel like you're just silently observing your client when you're trying to see what they're looking for. And it takes time. It definitely uh, involves a lot of patience because the nonverbal clients who are uh, in that moment trying to find what's going to motivate them, it's just, it's going to take some time. I'm finding that with telehealth, which is what I'm doing right now, you have to be even more creative. And I have a couple of nonverbal clients who I need to have like my whiteboard uh, available. So if they want to draw um, some videos up, educational videos, um, sometimes it's in their environment, like if their parent is there and they're manding for a blanket or a dinosaur toy. I feel like preference assessments, they work in their own ways. Because at the end of the day, the conclusion is they're going to choose something that's going to motivate them. But that's what I've been finding in my experience thus far. Absolutely. Great. Ian, anything you want to add to that? Sure. When we do have clients who have the verbal ability to just tell us what it is they want, we save ourselves time with not having to do something more formal, as well as provide dignity to that, that client. Because if you're able to tell us what you want, imagine if that was you and we're presenting you with items and saying, pick one. It's not necessary. So respecting the dignity of that learner and knowing what they're capable of. Um, and then as far as the free operant preference assessment goes, it kind of circles us back to a previous BT podcast we did, and that was pairing. So pairing with a client is essentially a free operant preference assessment. When we start pairing with a client, the first thing we do is we follow their lead and we see what they interact with. My recommendation to all of our behavior technicians out there is that's probably how you should start every session is when we walk into a session with a client, we have no idea, you know, what their day has been like, what they've been up to. So, you know, your kid who's nine out of 10 days of the week, always motivated for reinforcer A, you never know when you're going to walk in and reinforcer B is the thing today. And the only way you're going to know is by watching and seeing what the kid does. So both are, again, like you said earlier, Brian, as far as tools, both very effective tools in your toolboxes in RBT. And as you're describing that, Ian, about how you know preference assessments provide uh, dignity and promote dignity with their clients, I was thinking about how powerful choice is as a reinforcer of knowing that I can make a selection. I share pretty much every episode. I've got toddlers at home and uh, right now they're two and a half and there could be times where it's time to go inside. They're having a blast outside. They don't want to go inside and I'll say, it's okay. It's time to go inside. That's not met with a lot of enthusiasm. And then I'll say, well, you want to walk with dad and hold my hand or would you like me to carry you? And they'll say, walk. And they're cooperative almost instantaneously. And it's like, wow, that choice as a reinforcer was really effective to help them get on track to where they need to be. And we'll circle back to the power of choice uh, very shortly as well. So awesome guys. So we went over a couple more informal ways of looking at preference assessment, asking, observing. Now let's get into some more of the structured um, testing, if you will, formal preference assessments. Okay. We've got a couple of different types and I want to just touch on what makes each unique? And then 
I'm going to go through a pretty cool decision tree at the end of this episode of when are the situations in which you might use one over the other. Okay. So the first one that I want to go over is known as a multiple stimulus without replacement preference assessment. Okay. An MSWO. Okay. And I'll allude to this later on when we go over our RBT series, common test question you might be looking at on a future exam, let's just say is what type of preference assessment are we referring to here? So being able to, to tease out an MSWO versus a paired stimulus, et cetera, um, uh, listen to some of these defining features. Okay. So a multiple stimulus without replacement is one in which a teacher places an array of items in front of a child and they allow them to select one. Okay. So you might start off with six items on the table the therapist will say, pick one, the child picks one, okay? After the child picks it, they can play with or consume the item if it's food. Teacher removes it from the array. So we started with six, now we're down to five. Each time the teacher presents the item, that is known as one trial. The teacher repeats the trials until there are no items left in the array. Um, and it also should be noted that between presentations, um, they should know what order were these items. We started off, uh, all of the preferred items were arranged in one formal way. We should shuffle those between trials, which we'll talk about as well. Okay, so typically at the end of this, what this allows us to do is it allows us to determine a hierarchy of potential reinforcers in which the item that was selected first was the most preferred. The item that was selected second was the second most preferred and so on. And so... MSWO, let's just go over some aspects. Ian, why might it be important to rotate the order of items in between trials? We have a tool in our toolbox as technicians, what's called a positional prompt. And what that means is, is whenever we want a child to purposefully respond to an item in a field, if you will, we put it closer to them because we know they're likely, more likely to pick that item. Well, if we continue to place the same items in the same spots, Kids may just inadvertently continue to reach to the same spot. And by making sure we move the items, we can identify that that's occurring if it is. Well said. And one thing I want to add to that too, is that through the rotation of items, it helps us ensure that the child doesn't have what we would call a side bias, where I'm right-handed, I'm going to grab every item that's on my right side, and you're not making any discriminations. So allowing you to move those items, hopefully, is a way in which you can determine that those side biases aren't occurring. One prerequisite skill for doing a preference assessment is knowing whether or not a child can attend to a certain field. Absolutely. That's an important one. And also, and this will come into place in our decision tree in just a minute, um, they also need to be able to tolerate the removal of an item. After that item in the array is presented, it's going to be taken away to narrow that field. And so that's another prerequisite skill that they have to have. So let's keep moving. And I want to contrast this with our next preference assessment, which is our multiple stimulus with replacement. So an MSW. So the helpful hint, being able to discriminate as an RBT, the difference between an MSWO and an MSW is a pretty important one. It's going to be one that I'm pretty confident that you'll probably see in some form or fashion on a study test prep question. Um, and so I just want to highlight it here. It's almost identical to what we just listed above with the important distinction of in between trials, you're not removing that item. So let me just describe it in its entirety. In an MSW, a multiple stimulus with replacement, the teacher places an array of items in front of the child. 
and allows him or her to select one. After the child plays with or consumes the item, the teacher replaces that same item in the array and replaces unselected item with new ones. Okay, meaning if on the first opportunity, and let's say you're you're trying to establish a hierarchy of edible reinforcers, here's another pro tip: it's best to separate edible from non-edible reinforcers in a preference assessment um, because. We, we, as human beings, we tend to, and this would be the case for me, we tend to go overwhelmingly towards the edible items first. So I run those separately. That's a little pro tip for you. Um, So if in an MSW, if on trial one, the client selects a red Skittle, on trial two, another red Skittle is going to replace that, right? So each time in between presenting the array, um, this is one trial. The teacher repeats the trials until a set number of trials is complete or until the child refuses to take any further selection. So they're satiated. Typically, the items the child selects the most are the highest preferred items in the array, and the items the child selects the fewest is the lowest preferred items, okay? So again, the big difference here, multiple stimulus without a replacement, MSWO, we don't put that item back in the array. MSW, we do, okay? Taj, any experience in the field running either of those two assessments in your own practice that you want to share? Definitely with edible tangibles. I had a client uh, when I was doing in-home before the pandemic, I would have cookies, maybe some gummy bears and I don't know, some Skittles or something like that. I would have them in an array and I have my selections and then I'd have them, I'd have them choose, you know, what he wanted to work for, what his motivation was going to be with the edible tangible and um, I wouldn't replace it because with each trial he was going for you know cookies he was gravitating towards that consistently so it kind of made my preference assessment as far as having an edible reinforcer really easy because I knew that if I wasn't if I wasn't replacing it he was going to take the cookie yeah, absolutely. And I, I think about the power of choice. We were talking about a bit earlier of if you were to say, hey, Brian, do you want to have tacos tonight? I'm going to probably say yes every single time. But if you were to say, hey, Brian, do you want to have tacos, sushi, or Thai food? Oh, man. Depending on the day, it's, ah, gosh, that one, that's a tough question. I don't know if I can answer on the spot. It might take a little time. Right. Tell you, I have sushi in a while. I'm going to go sushi today, right? And so having those choices is a really important way that we are getting the, the most potent reinforcer, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, because as we've said, reinforcers, they change frequently. It's a really dynamic effect. So great example, Taj. Well, we'll keep moving here. We're moving towards the end. Next one I want to talk about is the paired stimulus preference assessment. This is one I see really often because it's another very quick and easy way to identify preferred items and activities. This is one in which a teacher places two items. So think of a pair, paired stimulus, two items, usually toys or edibles, in front of the child and allows him or her to select one. So they might say pick one. After the child plays with or consumes the item, the teacher presents another trial of two items. So you're going to be rotating between sets of two in this paired stimulus, also known as a forced choice, although I prefer the term paired stimulus, I think, myself. Each time the teacher presents the two items, this is known as one trial. The teacher repeats the trials until every item has been paired with one another in a sort of round robin style approach, if you will. Typically, the item 
which is selected the most are seen as the most preferred and the ones that are chosen the, the least are seen as the least preferred. So you can think about a pair choice as kind of like a very slim down multiple stimulus preference assessment. I'm going to pitch this question back to you. Guys, when do you think a paired stimulus preference assessment would be preferred over um, you know, any sort of like multiple stimulus where you have a larger array? Are, can, are you thinking about some particular clients where I might use paired yeah. stimulus? the other one what would that be so i'll swing away first so for me it's not so much as about the client as it is about the time when you're going to do it so i'd be more likely to do a multiple stimulus without say more at the beginning of a session or with a a newer client that i'm not as familiar with um that multiple stimulus without replacement is helpful in knowing more long term what might be effective as a reinforcer. So for example, let's say you decide uh, with a new client for the first 10 sessions, you're going to do a multiple stimulus without replacement assessment. And that assessment might tell you, oh, well, look, eight out of the 10 sessions, the same three reinforcers were picked the first three times. So then we know in future preference assessments, now, you know, in the future, we're doing more, say, your paired choice preference assessment. Well, now we are, we're more confident in what we should include in those assessments in the future. And then specific to, to sessions, again, the beginning of the session might be when I do more of a multiple stimulus without, where I've got a, a more abundance of items, um, and I do your pick one, as you explained. And again, in that day, that tells me, okay, reinforcer A might be the most motivating thing today. And then in subsequent um preference assessments, I'd be more likely to do the, the paired choice where I'm going to present two or three or four things and say, pick one. Great point, Ian. Well said. Taj, anything you'd want to add to that? I was just going to piggyback, maybe a paired choice. I, I usually find, I'm thinking about a particular client, but I know when we have a, at the top of session, I start with an MSWO. And then once we have the, the reinforcer established, and once we're doing trials over the course of the session, once that momentum is established, then I would probably scale it to a paired choice because it's like, okay, you prefer drawing or a game? So like, let's do this for a little bit. And it's like, as Ian said, it's a time factor too. It's, you know, just help narrow down that choice, but still making sure that one, there's a reinforcement that's going to be effective and maybe, a, you know, offsetting with something that may not be as preferred, maybe a low to moderate preference. That's what I would probably do. Yeah. When I asked this question, I was thinking of my son, Colby, where it's bedtime. It's like, you know, it's about seven, seven o'clock and we're winding down, right? I'm certainly winding down. We have this routine of bedtime. Each of the kids get to pick out a book that we'll read and then we'll tuck them in. And so we have this big bookshelf filled with books. And if I were to tell Colby, granted, this is a very big multiple stimulus. This is like with like, you know, a hundred items on it. Maybe that's too many. If I were to say, hey, buddy, pick one that little guy is going to have a blast picking about 15, right? <laughs> what I've found is, all right, I'm going to pick two options for you. And it's all right, buddy. Are you going to eat, read the, the very hungry caterpillar tonight or good night moon? We, those are the two choices and he's able to make that selection. So uh, the ability to make that selection is, I think, a prerequisite skill. And, and for maybe some of our earlier learners, sometimes a paired stimulus is a little uh, less overwhelming, for lack of better words. So, yep. Um, and even sometimes for that reason, Brian, you know, again, going back to the ability to choose from a field, sometimes we even have to go to a single stimulus and hold out one item. And, and based on the client's behavior, do they take it or do they swat it away or turn away mm -hmm. or just not respond? 
Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Great consideration. I completely agree. All right, let's go to, we've got two more preference assessment, and then we're going to end with our, our decision tree model. So the next one that I want to highlight as you perfectly transitioned into it, Ian, is the single stimulus. So this is one where a teacher places a single item in front of the child and allows the child to approach it and engage with it. After the child finishes consuming either the edible or stops playing with the toy, uh, the teacher will remove the toy and present another item. Each time the teacher presents one item, this is known as one trial, and the teacher repeats the trial until every item in the array has been offered to the child or until the child consistently rejects it or does not approach every item. Typically, the items the child approaches consistently and engages with for the longest are considered the child's highest preferred item, and the items the child does not approach or responds with avoidant problem behavior are considered the lowest preferred item. So just as you said, Ian, like we're going to present items on a one-to-one basis and then determine how are they responding to it. We might even, you know, time the duration of interaction like, oh, man, Colby was playing with that truck for 30 out of 30 seconds in this interval, but the blocks he only touched for a couple seconds, then he's moving on to the next thing. So uh, another good time um, when maybe those selection responses are a little bit more challenging, if you will. The last one is the free operant preference assessment, which we've spoken out uh, a bit to begin. And it's in a naturalistic free operant preference assessment, the child is permitted to engage freely in a typical and everyday environment. Typically, there's some set time set aside to just for the therapist just to observe um, the child in a free area. In a contrived free apparent assessment, the teacher might intentionally set up a predetermined number of items in sight. So maybe in a parent interview, mom said, oh, yeah, by the way, they he really loves Bob the Builder. So you're going to see, okay, is that the case? We're going to put some of those items purposefully in the environment to see what they do with it. And then in a contrived observation, it might be helpful to have some potentially reinforcing items are not typically available. For both types of observations, the teacher observed the child for a predetermined amount of time without interference. The items that the child approaches consistently and engages with for the longest are considered the child's highest preferred items, and the items the child does not approach are considered the child's lowest preferred items. In a sense, you can kind of think of the free operant as similar in, in my respect, to a single stimulus. However, the child has the op- opportunity to freely move about the environment. So instead of the therapist presenting a single item at a time and we see how the child responds, in the free operant, the child is free to move and we are just observing in that natural space to see the things that could potentially be reinforcing. So that concludes our overview of the different types of preference assessments. Certainly more could be said about each, but we want to just give you a general overview. Now what I want to do, guys, is I want to conclude with a pretty fun decision tree model. Because as RBTs, there's going to be times where you're going to maybe have to make a distinction about what preference assessment might be the most effective in the moment. Your BCBA is going to provide you instruction on a wide variety, but there could be times where in the moment you want to determine what's going to be the most effective. So here's a really great model that I want to share with you that we'll go through that maybe can help determine what preference assessments can be right um, in the exact scenario. And, And of course, when in doubt, always refer to your BCBA. So let's move through this, guys. All right. So Here's I'm looking at a model here, and it's the initial question is, what type of preference assessment should I conduct with my child? The first question you should ask is, 
do you have an understanding of the type of items the child likes or dislikes? If the answer to that is no, then run a free operant assessment, right? The child will show themselves. If you do, if the child, if the answer to that question is yes, you do have an understanding. The next question you should ask is a child able to consistently select between two items without choosing the same side. Okay. Oh, if the answer to that is no, Ian, as you said, let's do a single stimulus preference assessment or maybe another free operant assessment. Okay. If the answer is yes, they can make um, consistent decisions and selections, then is a child able to select between three or more items without choosing the same side? If the answer is no, then go to a paired stimulus, right? Because remember, we, those are only uh, two items presented at the same time, okay? If the answer is yes, then ask yourself the question, does a child engage in any sort of challenging behavior when that favorite item is removed? If the answer is yes, well, then maybe we should do a multiple stimulus with replacement. So those items are consistently being added back. And if the answer is no, then you can refer to an MSWO. So I love this model. I thought it was a really well put together and great way to synthesize the different decisions that you make. And moral of the story, guys, and the general takeaway that we want you to get from this episode is there is a variety of ways that you as a behavior technician can assess what is going to be the most motivating for your learner in a given session and go to this full, be able to choose from this full variety of different assessment types so that you can identify the unique needs and preferences of your learner because it's going to make therapy, all that more fun and effective um, and enjoyable for you and for the client. So any sort of uh, parting words uh, that you want to add in this episode, Taj, let me, let me kick it to you. Any final thoughts that you want to share with the team? I think if I could give any advice to any incoming BTs or RBTs, because I've been in, I've been in, I've been doing this for a year and a half and I'm learning new things every day constantly yeah i think we had we had kind of touched on it earlier but that power of choice making sure again you have plenty of options for your client you don't want to come into a session and be so overwhelmed because you don't have an effective reinforcer because then then you're losing momentum you're losing the time so and you also don't want to be the negative reinforcer for your client. You want to make sure that it's enriching and it's, it's a quality session. So, and uh, yeah, you should have a fun time with your client because Westwood sessions should be fun and engaging. A special thanks as always to Ian McGarvey, a friend of the show, and to our new friend, Taj Campbell. I so enjoyed our conversation today. I hope it provided you with a few ways in which you too can make your sessions more individualized dignified and engaging. Be sure to subscribe as we continue our journey through the RBT task list. And as we hear more of the stories of our incredible staff, which power our mission until next time.